The reason I'm preaching from here rather than up there is that we're doing a review of our sound system and uh, it is going to be upgraded so that the quality of the sound, particularly for the live streaming, is improved. But we've worked out that the live stream works better from here than up there, which accounts for why I'm here. Struggling with God. I hope you know that it's all right to struggle with God. It is all right to ask questions from the deeply personal, why is this happening to me, to the fundamental, where are you God? We read in a number of places in the Bible that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But we shouldn't be afraid to ask questions. We see many people do it in the Bible. Jacob struggled with God. The book of Job is all about Job's struggles with God. Ecclesiastes is one big struggle with God, and many Psalms are as well. Uh, This is the first of two sermons on struggling with God. Next week I want to share some of my struggles, some of my doubts, particularly around contemporary issues. Uh, But today I want to suggest that sometimes we struggle against a misconceived or false view of God. We struggle against a God who doesn't exist rather than the God who does. The fear of the Lord is a deep reverence or respect for God. And that is where wisdom starts. Living well before God starts with actually knowing who God is. Uh, And if we don't do that, we, we really start off in the wrong direction. Um, We're talking about the God who reveals himself in the Bible and in Jesus and in his creation and in our lives. God reveals himself in many different ways. The story I've chosen as a battleground for this struggle is the confronting story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, We have only heard the prophet Nathan's rebuke of David and you might be needing to fill in some of the details as to to why he was rebuting David. Um, But uh, it's his rebuke that will be my focus. Um, The David who is rebuked is the David who, as a young boy, slew Goliath. This David became Israel's greatest king and penned or inspired many of the Psalms. When Moses led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, through the Exodus, it was always intended that God would be Israel's king. He would lead, judge, fight their battles and protect them. Moses also passed on God's warning to the people about seeking a king among their number. He said it won't end well. But after a succession of hopeless leaders called judges, The people of Israel decided they wanted a king like the nations around them. They chose Saul, who was tall and good-looking, but not a very good king. And God chose David to replace him. For he said that David was a man after his own heart, a man whose heart was turned to God. God gave David victory over Goliath and the Philistines, protected him from the jealous Saul, and finally had him installed as king, with the Ark of the Covenant being installed in the new capital of Jerusalem. 
David did many good things. Israel prospered. But in 2 Samuel 11, just a little bit before our passage today, we read that while his armies were fighting, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around to the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messages to get her. She came to him and he slept with her and she became pregnant. To conceal his involvement in the pregnancy, David devised a plan to have Uriah killed. Uriah would know he had been fighting while uh, fighting for David and was not the father of the child. So David needed to get rid of Uriah. David instructed his army commander Joab in a letter, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. A terrible plan. And so it happened. Uriah was killed in battle. David told a messenger to tell Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours as well as another press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Sort of, you can really feel the deceitfulness we sometimes see in leaders around the world here, can't you? Just trying to put a good gloss on something which is actually deeply evil and hurtful. But clearly David effectively murdered Uriah. Bathsheba mourned the loss of her husband. David had her brought to his house and she became another of his wives. She then bore a son and the chapter ends with these words. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Let's think of the things David had done wrong. He had broken at least three of God's Ten Commandments. He had committed adultery, he had murdered, and he had borne false witness. By his actions, he had tried to conceal this betrayal of his office and his guilt. In terms of contemporary morality, we would add in sexual harassment, abuse of a position of power, and rape. Uh, if, it, if he was in the federal government, he may even have had to stand aside for a short while. And so our questions flow. Why did David end up with such an exalted reputation when he was a murdering adulterer? The story doesn't even appear in the account given in the book of Chronicles, which also covers David's reign as if a couple of centuries later, it was okay to airbrush out this horrendous story. Why did God choose David if he knew what David would do? Why did David live when the penalty in the law of Moses for adulterers was to be stoned to death? Why should we follow a God who lets his chosen king get away with murder? Okay, he didn't get totally away. The, the story does appear here for all posterity. 
we know that he has a mixed legacy. He is rebuked by Nathan, which he will which we'll return to shortly. And there is another unpleasant consequence. After this rebuke and David's confession, Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin, you are going to die, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Bathsheba's firstborn would die. The life that is lost is not David's, but Bathsheba's son. David was devastated when he heard that the child would die. We're told David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. There is remorse. And David comforted Bathsheba. They had another child called Solomon, and we're told the Lord loved him. God would make him king in place of David when David died of an old age and would give him wisdom. But still, a child died because God willed that he die. And Bathsheba lost her first husband, her first child, and had been raped. I suspect in the eyes of many of us, that is not fair or right. Why should we worship a God who is so capricious and unjust? How can we hold up this God to our friends and family as a God to follow? My faith teaches me that Uriah and the dead child were not lost to God. Bathsheba saw her second son become a mighty king of Israel in accordance with his wishes, uh, with, her, with her wishes, sorry. And without this backstory, we may not have the remarkable Psalm 51, which I'll read a little bit from later. Uh, this psalm has brought so much comfort and inspiration to people over the last 3,000 years. And some of you will remember Peggy. It was her favourite psalm. Each time I visited her over her last couple of years, she would ask me to read it to her, even though she knew the circumstances that gave rise to it. But I still struggle with this story. It's not David's confession of sin and remorse that builds my reverence and respect for God, let alone the death of the first son But the insight into God that I get from Nathan the prophet's rebuke of David. This is the same Nathan who spoke these words back in 2 Samuel 7, words that we often hear at Christmas and Easter, and point so wonderfully to God's plan of salvation in his son Jesus Christ, a descendant of David, born in royal David's city. Nathan said this to him. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. And we know that Jesus sits on that throne. As a prophet, Nathan spoke words of rebuke from God to David. This is God's judgment on David, not Nathan's. And isn't it fascinating 
God does not start by reminding David of his Ten Commandments and the way David had broken at least three of them and deserved death. That would be what an earthly ruler or politician would do. This is the law. You have broken it. We are tough on crime. We're so familiar with that, aren't we? But that is not what God does. He tells a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. God is really reaching out and grabbing our hearts, isn't he? We've got so much empathy with this um, uh, poor man. And now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for his traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. It's a well-calibrated story, neither too obvious nor opaque. David did not see himself in the story immediately. Hearing it, he burned with anger and pronounced judgment on the traveller, the judgment of a king. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. That is what David, the king, would do but not the Lord God, the true King of Israel. God's judgment follows on the lips of Nathan. You are the man. You are the traveller who took what he could, first Bathsheba and then her beloved husband and then her first son. You had no pity on them. Nathan recounts some of the blessings David had received from the hand of the Lord. Is he saying, and you repay the Lord like this? Or or do you really know the Lord who lives at all? The Lord we meet here is different from what we might expect. As I said, he could have said, you have broken three of my ten commandments. You have sinned, you must die. But he doesn't. Despite the law, despite his holiness, he does not take an eye for an eye. As David's descendant Jesus would say, as we heard, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. His character is consistent all the way through the Bible. The Lord sees David's genuine remorse and accepts David's confession. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And the Lord accepts that confession. Remember, earlier in the service, we have confessed our sins and we can be confident because of stories like this, that our sins 
are forgiven, that our confession is accepted. For the God who sets laws and prescribes punishments, this is different from what we might expect. There is mercy and teaching and a desire for a future together. And if we pause and and think about where we are in the story, we see that David learned from his struggle with God. Just look at the words of Psalm 51, which are usually attributed to David. The introduction to this psalm in most Bibles is a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And just think of what must have been going through David's mind when he made this confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He could stop there, but he goes on. You have desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Only you can do it. I can't do it myself. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Because only you can do it. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. It really is a beautiful psalm, isn't it? And it's a mighty confession. We might balk at the statement, against you only have I sinned, as David clearly also sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba, and the first son. This leads some to think that the psalm may not be by David, but a a general prayer of confession. But I I, I don't follow that, actually. I think that the point of this is that his sin, David's sin, started with his rejection of God, betraying God's trust in making him king and all the other sins that flow from that. But either way, we see a beautiful and profound confession and some profound things about God. First, God is not fair. God is not fair. None of Uriah, Bathsheba, David, nor the first son get what they appear to deserve. But God is merciful. David gets an opportunity to grieve, to repent, and to see and enjoy God's mercy. He would do nothing like this again. 
Bathsheba saw her second son become the king, and for most of it, a very good king, a wise king. And as I've said, I'm confident because of God's goodness that Uriah and the first son also received mercy in the life to come. Because remember the words of Jesus, the first will be last and the last first. David should be first because he was king, but he will be last, but at least he will be there. And Uriah and the son, well, they will be first, even though they were killed. When we stand back, I I would much prefer that God be merciful than fair, as the world understands fairness. An eye for an eye is not nearly as good as mercy and another chance. The second thing we learn from this is we see something that I think many in the world simply have no idea about. Absolutely none. They may talk about religion and Christianity and God and Jesus and whatever else they talk about, but they just do not get this at all. It's outside their whole way of thinking. And that is that God sets the bar really low. Many, think, many people think that you've got to be good to be a Christian. Or they give up because they think they're not good enough. But lying, adulterous murderers get to enjoy God's mercy. And get as many chances as they need. Third, God is faithful to his promises. He promised that there would be a king that followed him and build, that followed David and would build the temple and that there would be a king in David's line who would reign forever. And we see that this is a God who is not thrown off track by our sins. This is a God who longs for us to turn to him in faith, no matter who we are and what we've done. This is a God who will find a way to us and help us back to him. The story resonates with me. As I grew up, I don't think I ever thought there was a God. I I saw through the tooth fairy and Santa Claus pretty early and didn't think much about God. By my mid-teens, I was confident there was no God. During my 20s, my contempt for religions only grew. I knew only a couple of people who were brave enough to admit to being Christians at uni, and I just could not understand why they would believe anything like that. For all the contempt I had for God, why would God let me live? I hadn't caused anyone's death, but I had just as clearly rejected God as David had. I hadn't even bothered to find out about him. When we approach it like this, the funny thing is that my struggle becomes not with a God who gives out commandments or allows what happened to Uriah and the first son and Bathsheba. My struggle is is with why he would allow David and me off. Why would he do that? Because God is love. 
That is his fundamental character. It is all the way through him. He can't hate in the, in the sense of just being indifferent to us. He, he, he loves us. And this story shows us how much he loves us. This story leads us to the grace and mercy of God. And we see th- wonderful things when we struggle with God. When we look at hard passages like this and we try and think of who is this God, and God just becomes better and better as we struggle with stories like this. He allows us to see things we would never see if we just skimmed over the surface or only listened to the people around us about what God is. Let's let's struggle with God because wonderful things happen when we do. Well, um, musicians have chosen a good hymn to follow this sermon, one that reminds us to listen to God, to, to learn wisdom, to learn his ways. So please stand as our musicians come and bring us this hymn, and you can tell with Andrew that he was a choir boy, can't you? It's just wonderful. Thanks, Andrew.